just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. This is Johnny Ball, and this is a very special episode. In fact, this is my most downloaded episode that I have ever had, and for a very good reason as well. I get to speak to one of my public speaking and writing heroes, really, about what he does, why he does it, how he does it, and really talking about influence and persuasion in a way that really inspired me to drive this show much more into a stronger focus on the influence and persuasion side of things. But of course, we are not going to be steering too far away from the public speaking and presentation skills aspects, which are still very critical as a part of general influence and persuasion. This show was recorded a while back and and I've been making a lot of changes and improvements to the show. And one thing that I thought that I could do, since this is such a popular episode, is go back and improve the sound quality of the show, which I have done, and also update things a little bit. So obviously not not changing the actual interview itself, although I am cleaning up some of the perhaps filler words and things, some of the gaps. And so making it a better quality audio for you, it just seems like the right thing to do. And also gives me another chance to promote this fantastic show, which was so much fun to do. I didn't realize when I first spoke to Simon Lancaster, who is my guest today, that it was his first time being on a podcast. (laughs) It's my bad that I didn't make sure things were set up as properly as they could have and should have been. I'm hoping that Simon will agree to come back on the show again. There's certainly plenty more things that I would love to speak to him about in relation to things like rhetoric and political speech writing. However, this is still a great show, and I hope that you will enjoy this remastered version that is nicely cleaned up with volume and audio quality improvements. Now, some of the audio still isn't that perfect. That's really on me for not having made sure things were set up as well as they possibly could have been for interviewing somebody who I admire as much as Simon Lancaster. That said, I think you'll still gain a lot from the show. And certainly the audio quality isn't so bad that it's painful to listen to. On Speaking Influence, we delve into the knowledge, skills, experience, stories, and secrets of some of the world's best influence and persuasion experts. We have in-depth conversations with people who are out in the world, applying and often teaching the tools of ethical influence and persuasion, and sometimes exploring the not-so-ethical side of things too. 
Guests range from successful authors and entrepreneurs, secret service members and psychologists, marketing and branding experts, even the occasional professional comedian or world champion of public speaking and storytelling. Former cult members, neuroscientists, voice coaches, professional stylists, political speech writers and public speaking experts. Every episode takes our guests' knowledge and experience and turns it into actionable information that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world of influence and persuasion works and become a better wielder of the weapons of ethical influence and persuasion in life and in business, leaving hopefully each of us a little smarter and better off than before we started. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that explores the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. If you have an online business, you need to work on list building. The easiest way to get started for free is ConvertKit. It's recommended by industry pros like Pat Flynn, Chris Ducker, and our very own Johnny Ball. Click the link in the show notes and start building your list today. It's really exciting to be joined by someone who I'm a really big fan of and was a bit blown away when he agreed to come and be on my podcast. And he's a political speechwriter. He's the author of several amazing books. The one I read most recently is called Winning Minds. It's about the language of leadership. We're certainly going to be talking about that today. He has other books like An Expert's Guide to Speechwriting and uh, I think one of them was called uh, You Are Human. Is that right? Or You Are Not Human. You are not human. You are not human, which is, I guess, about some of the language, the ways language can be used to dehumanize people. It's one that I've yet to get to as well, but uh, looking forward to reading that at some point. But he is an amazing speaker. You may have seen him on TEDx. You might have caught some of his speeches on YouTube. And his name is Simon Lancaster. So welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you for having me on, John. It's a pleasure. Excellent. I, I knew I was going to get something a bit wrong in the introduction, but I hopefully got that mostly right. Although I know we haven't even really covered um, half of what I could have put into an introduction because you are also a, a professional political speechwriter and you've worked with many politicians over the years. Yes, that's right. So it's, I mean, it's 20 years. It was 20 years ago today um, that I started uh, writing speeches. And the first person I was writing for was actually Alan Johnson when he was a junior minister at the Department of Trade and Industry. And he was the guy who really sparked my love and fascination of language. He was brilliant with words himself. And obviously now he's written loads of best-selling uh, books. His autobiography, I think he's now on to volume four or something like that. So Really, he, he was a great guy to work with and he inspired me and really got me going into some speech writing. Fantastic. But when you very first started speech writing, did you know that that was something that you wanted to start doing or was it something you fell into or just realized you had a, a bit of a gift for? I, I always really wanted to be a songwriter. This is where my passion from. <laughs> so when I was at school, I can still remember that my music teacher at school was a guy called Bernie Newman. And I remember when I was 11 years old, he stood by the keyboard with me and he showed me how to make chords. And it was like, you know, I mean, I do, do you play music at all? I do. Yeah. I, I, I went to music school and things like that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I'm a pianist, keyboard player, all that kind of thing. Oh, we should forget talking about influence. Let's 
and get your instruments that like you know this c major a minor f and g and he explained to me this 11 year old boy he said this is how you can create songs out of these four chords and he then showed all of the songs that were written using these four chords and then i started writing songs and i was literally i still write songs today i still write a dozen songs or so a year it depends what i've got going on but i always wanted to be a songwriter and i was sending my songs off to record companies all of the time never got anywhere never earned a penny for a single song but then all of a sudden i found that speech writing is actually is really similar in so many ways you find your theme you stick to recognized templates the simplicity of the metaphor, the ideas, language, all of that kind of thing, and moving people. A lot of what I do actually is taking techniques from music and turning turning it into language, really, turn it into spoken word. But that's really interesting because one of my friends who's become a friend after being a guest on my show, she used to be the director of the Met Opera. And so she's directed people like Domingo and Pavarotti and all these kinds of people. And she often talks about the musicality of speeches and of speaking in public as well. And I love it as a metaphor. And I like the whole, I know, and definitely I come under the more jazz style, both in my music and probably in my public speaking work as well, which is cool. You have a, a little jazz band as well, right? If you think you said something about that in your book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously COVID has knocked all of that sort sure. of performance thing on the window but yeah i think if it's winning minds that you've just read at that point i was in like an acid jazz type band called soul lot of funk based in wales and then now actually the last five years i've been doing um much more kind of emotionally expressive type music so not like the old disco and soul and funk catalog but rather instead more writing my own songs and going, going into the american songbook so working with fantastic who lives locally to me and we've been playing we were pre-covid playing cocktail bars and doing local parties and stuff like that which is great fun it's just nice having a kind of outlet for that sort of thing still love my music <laughs> but one of the things that I that really relates to that that I got from the Winning Minds book was about the the fact that you mentioned bands like the Beatles and organizations like Disney have used language, emotional language, creating emotional language very well. They're really good at it. And you talk, talk in that book about creating these word clouds from these sorts of masters who do the language of emotion very well. And that really we should all be focusing much more on the emotion than on things like trying to logically persuade people yeah absolutely and that's what the disney does so well it's what bands do so well and if you contrast that with most corporate speak we're laying down the foundations and driving change and if we use our growth wheel and we execute that in all of our key markets playing it's just like what the hell are you saying here you contrast most corporate rubbish with the simplicity of like the long and winding road or Fountain High, River Deep or any of the way that the, the, any of the great songs really. And you just see such a massive difference. And so give me a, a load of corporate bullshit. And what <laughs> I would like to do is try and turn it into some sort of Lennon and McCartney thing that plants an image in people's minds that moves them emotionally, that takes them on some kind of journey. That's what you want to do. Definitely. Well, super important stuff. The first thing that I ever saw you in was your TEDx talk on the language of leadership. 
And, uh, and I was blown away by it. Sometimes there's a, a big gap in sort of uh, levels between TED and TEDx stuff, but not in this case. This is one of my, definitely probably is my favorite TEDx talk I've ever watched. And one of the reasons that is before watching that, and I think it was a few years back, but before watching it, I had never encountered the, really the idea or, or the understanding of rhetoric and the, the art of ancient rhetoric. And some, as someone who's done all sorts of public speaker trainings and has read up on influence and persuasion, I was like, wow, there's this whole thing that's been there for like hundreds of thousands of years that I had no idea about. And so then I got a little bit uh, hooked on that and started reading and learning much more about rhetoric. But for, for the audience, he may, some of the audience may never have encountered this before. Can you tell us a bit more about what the art of rhetoric is? I certainly can. And thank you for your kind words, John, as well about the TEDx. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. The rhetoric is the art of persuasion. And it's something that actually used to be taught in every school. Like it was seen as a core part of the curriculum back in ancient Rome on the basis that people couldn't function at all, really, in society unless they knew how to persuade other people. You couldn't be a politician. You can be a lawyer. You can work in finance or business successfully unless you knew how to persuade people and this is pretty damn obvious it's but it's something that kind of through the years has just slipped off the curriculum almost completely they now have they talk about oracy in the curriculum oracy as much about speaking as it is about listening it's still not really the dirty arts of persuasion that ancient romans used to get into but it's yeah it's basically it's the art of Persuasion. There are all these fabulous little tricks that you can use very, very simply in order to make yourself more persuasive when you're speaking, when you're writing. So, for instance, the very simple idea that if you put things in threes rather than fours, which in ancient Roman rhetoric they called tricolon, which sounds like a weird part of the digestive system, <laughs> but that yeah. put your arguments into threes. I never learned that at school. I learned, oh God, all sorts of useless rubbish at school, really. But stuff like how to persuade people should be right there. It should be at the center of the curriculum, really. Not only so we understand how to persuade people, but also so we can understand when other people are, are, are trying to mislead us, are trying to deceive us. And particularly now with everything that's gone on in the States in the last week or so, and, and also what's gone on in Britain over the last few years, an ability to properly dissect arguments and being able to sniff out this is a load of bullshit, actually, is surely a core skill for citizenship. You would think it should be. I and mean, one thing that stood out for me that you mentioned in, in your talk, and then there's so many great points in it, and anyone, ha anyone who hasn't watched it for the replay and for the podcast that goes out, it'll be a link in the show notes as well, so you can go and check it out. But you mentioned that there's only one school in the UK that teaches rhetoric anymore. Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah, it's it, uh, Eton places it slap bang in, in the center of everything. So they've even got like a mock House of Commons, as I understand it there, like a, a debating chamber that I think costs 11 million quid or thereabouts, some ludicrous sum of money. And of course, this prepares people to then reach the top of public life. So you just think of the people who have serious influence in the UK today. Well, the Prime Minister went to Eton, the Archbishop of Canterbury went to Eton, the second but one heir to the throne went to Eton, and they're all speaking a language of persuasion that really your average citizen ju just doesn't understand at all. 
And yes. I think when you look at people like Boris Johnson in particular, who uses rhetoric really very, very effectively in order to achieve all sorts of dubious ends, in my view. I think people should be aware of it. You look at some of the way that he's played the COVID debate, where it's a literal matter of life and death, and the way that he'll create diversions from the issue, the way that he'll appeal to things like courage. Come on, we're Great Britain, you know, we should be brave. We shouldn't be afraid of going out, you know, and that, that precisely demonstrates why it's something that should be taught. Yeah, and that, it's a bit of a contrast to how you open Winning Minds talking about Boris, because you, at the start of that, you talk about his talk at the Olympics, and that even you and your wife, who aren't politically fans of his, got swept along with the emotion of, of the talk there. Yeah, because he really taps into the, the essence of what drives human behavior. I think better than any politician, literally any politician than I can, that I can think of in Britain, going back, be better than Blair, better than Thatcher. He gets what, gets what motivates people. And so he'll pick a virtue like courage, decency, whatever it is. And then he'll corral people around that, his use of humor, his use of metaphor, his use of imagery. And of course, this is the thing that when... You can use rhetoric itself. Some people, a lot of people view rhetoric in kind of a pejorative way. They think it's inherently bad, which it's not on its own. It's like morally neutral. It's like a pen. You can use it to achieve good things or you can use it to achieve bad things. Right. And I think that overall, when Boris was mayor, he used his extraordinary skill in order to make the capital feel quite proud. And he put it into infrastructure projects and stuff like that. And so it, felt pretty good. And I, I think what he's achieved in the last few years, Brexit was obviously incredibly divisive here in, in the UK and also what's happened with, with COVID. And it's like, was he really using, has he been using rhetoric for good on those? Well, different people on different sides of the political debate will reach different views. But certainly I think when he was mayor, he was special because he had tra actually attracted appeal for more quarters. Now he's more, he's speaking to a smaller group, I think. Still very substantial, and he's still the best mm. in the field by a mark. How, how would you rate uh, Sir Keir Starmer then in terms of speech making? Um, well, frankly, within the privacy of this conversation, <laughs> I, I think it's hopeless. I think he, he fails on pretty well every counts. I don't think he looks at ease with himself when he's speaking, which I think is a, a critical no-no. You need to like someone, I think, to listen to. They might have a kind of infectious energy about them or something like that. And Keir Starmer, I've really struggled to, he doesn't look comfortable, I don't think, yeah. when he speaks. He certainly, he has a kind of patronizing tone, I think. There's something about his voice a lot of it is about the body language, I think, that puts me off. I think his speech is boring. I think they're, they're trying to be all things to all people, but actually being nothing to anyone in the process. I, th I think good speakers do need to say what they really, really believe from the bottom of their heart. I'm not sure I've ever seen 
Keir Starmer speak from the bottom of his heart. I'm not sure he can. He looks like a very kind of uptight individual. Sometimes you see him and he's got red face and stuff like that. And I've come across a few people that have worked with him over the years. And currently, I'm not sure he's necessarily an easy guy to work with. I'm not sure he's very laid back in the, the office. Right. You know what I'm quite uptight. And, and this is a problem for a leader. You do, you want, it's a bit more like, Gordon Brown or something like that, you kind of feel a bit uncomfortable when you're listening to them. We'll see how he does. It's still early days, but bearing in mind the year that Boris has had to see him still, Keir Starmer, st- st- Keir Starmer today is lower than Corbyn was in 2017. It's really interesting. And I think you know, I just, before speaking to you today, I've got uh, winning minds on audio, but and then, so I thought I'd have a re-refresh, a re-listen to it before, before we spoke to just to make sure that get to the bits that I really want to get to from that and uh, and in that book this is, you talk exactly about this the the language of leadership and and how important this is and how it you know the facts may not matter nearly as much as as the emotions that you can actually get people to feel when you speak and i was fortunate enough to have someone else who i managed to persuade to come and be a guest on my show a philosopher an expert in stoic philosophy called donald robertson and one of the reasons why i was so keen to speak to him other than i love stoic philosophy was also that he talked about like, the birth of public speaking the early days of you know, the roman senate and that the senators had to learn oration, they had to learn public speaking skills and talking about like Cicero, and especially we focused on Marcus Aurelius and that he was expected to learn these skills and and to be able to deliver passionately, but also to deliver competently and confidently. And that that skill is still now just as relevant, if not more so than it, than it ever was even all that time ago. Yeah, exactly right. And I, I think that too many, too many leaders who don't do too well, they kind of think that all they need to do is just read out words and that'll get them through that that's and just being bureaucratic. And it's not leadership is about the feelings you create in people. It's about making people feel like they're part of something bigger. It's about making people look to the future with confidence. It's a really exciting thing. Leadership is the essence of what brings people together, how communities are created when it's done well. And I think for too many people, leadership is just like a title that is slapped on their name badge. Well, it says team leader on my badge, therefore I lead people. No, leadership is about creating strong emotional feelings in people where they'll then go the extra mile for you. And I know as a speechwriter, just in, in my work, when I'm writing for someone that I've got a really strong emotional connection with, oh, be thinking about their speech constantly. I won't get it out of my head until it's done. It's their, their burden that I'm carrying for them. Where, whereas sometimes it can just be a job. And if you're a leader that really wants to create a strong company or a strong political movement, you need that emotional connection with people. They need to see that you're part of the same tribe as them, that you share their values, you value the same thing, but you're on the same kind of journey. You've got the same world's outlook that's where you want to get to yeah i i guess that must be i think you mentioned it in your ted talk it must be one of the challenges of being a speechwriter that once the once the words have left the page and gone off to the person delivering them the delivery is out of your control yeah yeah it is absolutely yeah and you know sometimes this can be a grimace type moment you know you're standing at the back of a room like kind of chewing your nails off. There was a fab picture that I shared on Twitter recently of Justin Trudeau's speechwriter 
watching him as he was delivering a speech and she's like, she went through that literally the whole range of human emotions <laughs> from like elation to exasperation and the proper head in hands moment. And but as, as a speechwriter, you're not trying to mold a public image. There's a kind of a misconception, a popular misconception of the speechwriter as a kind of Machiavellian puppeteer almost guiding these leaders into all sorts of dark places. And, and really, you know, it's much more that as a speechwriter, you're, you're an impressionist. This is what you're trying to do. You're really trying to get in there. So you're trying to find what's your passion. What really makes you tick? What's the thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night? You know, forget all of this bullshit about the corporate strategy and all of that. What's the thing that really upsets you in the world that you would really love to change if, if you had the power to do it? And you, you know, that's where, where I want to get to. So my speech writing sessions with clients are actually probably more like um a therapy session than an episode of the 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 thick of it or the west <laughs> yeah do, do you think it, it needs to be the case that, I, I don't know i've never written a speech really for for someone else to deliver but when you're doing that i assume or imagine at least that you get a brief as to what to deliver from sense what you're saying you have some meetings with the client as well do you ever write speeches that might be delivered by different people by maybe the person maybe not knowing the person who might be delivering it yeah, I mean, regularly. I've regularly done. It's different with all of my clients. The more access that I get to the, the principal, the person that's actually delivering the speech, the better it's going to be. Otherwise, it can feel a little bit like you're fumbling around in a dark room trying to find a small key. <laughs> but nevertheless, so there are times where I'll just, I'll get no brief whatsoever. I don't get access to the person. They just want the speech. They want some kind of content. And then because everyone's, Everyone has quite an internet presence now, particularly public figures. I can do some good detective work. It'll give me some clues to their style of voice. So you always want to decode their voice. You want to get an idea of the kind of buzzwords they use. Are they long word kind of people or short word people, long sentences or short sentences? What are their metaphors? What are their interests? And then you'll try and weave some of that in as much as possible. And you can do a fair job with that because people do have a lot of their own content online now. So you can anticipate what they're going to say, but really there's nothing better than when I've got a client and we'll do a little session on Zoom and we can really talk about the speech and I'll get them. I have a series of fun little exercises that I'll work through with them to, to really find out what they want to say. Excellent. I want to come back to your speech writing process with people it's something i didn't actually think to even ask you about before before we spoke and should have but the one thing i do want to definitely make sure we get to is to to discuss a bit more the the language of leadership because you talk particularly in the book about having to overcome the instinctive mind or, or have to win over i should say the instinctive mind and the emotional mind much more than the logical mind although you do talk about that in the book as well what do you mean by having to win over the instinctive mind and emotional mind but to show people that you're a good person you don't represent the threat to them that you have their interests at heart you know you're on their side we all have like this little caveman brain the re reptilian brain which is always trying to guide us to safety and away from danger and so it's you know it's speaking to that so it's like the archetypal bad leader 
for me, it's the one that will make people feel petrified, constantly making people feel petrified about whether or not their job is secure. And that, to people's instinctive brains, they're then like, like that, you know, they, could, they, they can't be at their best. There's no way you can be at your best if you're feeling afraid like that. So it's really about showing people you're a good person or on their side, which you can do in all sorts of ways. If you just think about kind of, and let me pick someone, not a divisive figure like a Trump or a Boris, but someone like Obama that probably most people would agree, you know, he's kind of universally admired. And you just look at some of the things about him, about if you think back to when we first saw Obama on the national stage, what was it that in all our minds said, this is a good guy? We can trust this guy. And most people would give different answers, but I, I would just point to that, you know, about the way he holds himself, his body language, his composure, his sense of humor, the kind of historic references that he would weave into like Lincoln and Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King and all of this. And his breathing was so slow and so steady. You just listened to that voice go on for hours and you just knew that you were in safe hands. And you contrast that with Trump who's like, we're losing. We don't win. You know, look at Mexico. Look at China. Look at these socialists ripping up our constitution. All of this. And you're like that. You're, you're on edge. And mm. it's about making people feel safe, I think. When we're talking about the instinctive mind, that you okay. can, can keep them safe. Yeah, I, I think I definitely agree that Obama is uh, an incredible speech maker and uh, very just, just incredibly watchable. And he and Michelle Obama, she is also, in, in my opinion, at least a, a very a very good speech maker, and she has great delivery too. So I don't know if, he, if she got coached by Barack or if she was already already maybe she coached him, but uh, the other way around. But both of them seem to be very gifted in that part. Yeah, the difference between the two is stark and it shows like the, the challenge for the speechwriter because you'd never hear Michelle Obama deliver a Barack Obama speech. Like Barack Obama is high on rhetoric and so he uses things like the rule of three, rhetorical repetition, the breathless sentences, the grandiose metaphors and imagery, whereas M Michelle Obama is far more conversational, colloquial, chatty, you know, all of these kind of, you know, just much more relaxed style of voice. Both have speechwriters. I've met speechwriters to each of them and had some insights into their kind of drafting, drafting process. But both of them equally effective in their own way, which does kind of show that it's not that there's a uniform way of speaking, but rather instead that you need to be true to yourself. You need to bring out your best self and connect with people emotionally in some way. Other than in the political arena, who is who else is there that may you may be able to point to who is just masterful in in terms of utilizing rhetoric and, and speech making? God, I mean, you know, um, well, he, he's the man at the moment. He's going to become president of the United States next week. Joe Biden, actually, I think he's certainly not someone who anyone could call a natural orator. You know, most of his career has been characterized by gaffes when he was speaking and accusations of plagiarism. I don't know if you remember the 1988 when he was trying to be presidential candidate back in 1988 and he ripped something. 
chunk from a speech by Neil Kinnock. No, no, oh, he had to step down because of that. And the two men have joked about it together and since so they met afterwards. And, you know, I think Joe Biden said, oh, it's good to meet you, my, my speechwriter. <laughs> you know, so Neil Kinnock had this line in one of his big conference speeches where he said, why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand years to go to university? Why was Glenys the first woman in a thousand years to go to university? Because of a Labour government, it was like that kind of thing. And Biden nicked it word for words. But if you look at, so, I mean, he's not a natural speaker. He's overcome a terrible stammer, which he yeah. had when he was a child, which he's talked about a lot. And yet you look at his speeches now, they're stuffed to the brim with rhetorical devices. You know, the rule of three, contrast, metaphor, practically every single line of his speeches utilizes one or other of those devices. So I, I, he's not someone that I think any of your viewers might to look at that he is very good. I was to help them. Yeah. Go, go on, John. Sorry. I was just going to say someone who we'll be seeing a lot more of because he's uh, he's being inaugurated very soon and the, no, that's going to get some huge coverage and we'll be maybe not seeing as much of him as we do of Trump, which has just seemed to be in daily barrage. But the but yeah, but we'll definitely be seeing a lot more speeches from Joe Biden and probably from Kamala Harris as well. Yeah, Kamala Harris, I, I like. She's someone that I think has far more that kind of authentic thing. You know, but Biden feels to me a little bit manufactured. Like, I don't think he can, I don't think it's, it's his voice that you're hearing. I think he's trying to be Obama. It doesn't feel very authentic to me. Whereas Kamala Harris, I remember her speech that she did when she was trying to be president, where she quoted Bob Marley and talked about her upbringing and what it meant to come from the the kind of exotic origins that she came from. And I, I remember being pretty blown away and thinking, wow, you're special, could see you going all the way. And chances are, I think she'll become president, won't she? I don't either during this term or, or if not, I think she'll be very well played come 2024. Although to be honest, after the 2020 election, the prospects of watching another US election kind of just does my head in a bit, but you know, it's <laughs> completely by then. Who knows? <laughs> One of the things that, that struck me the most from learning from you specifically was about metaphor. And it's, it's not a new concept to me. I've come across metaphor before. I think most, most of us have, but perhaps not everybody realizes just how common metaphor is in language and also how persuasive it is and you really go into some nice detail in the book about the how different kinds of metaphor in language elicit different kinds of emotional feeling can can you just share a bit more about that for for our audience here yeah totally metaphor is i think the most powerful form of political communication you can do things like create a rhyme or put an argument in threes and it will become more memorable but if you really want to change the way that people perceive something, you want to be changing the metaphors that you use. And so a good example for anyone who's listening, who's in business, the, it, it, you, you want to look at what the underlying metaphor that is used. When we use a metaphor, we say something is something which it is not. What you get in a lot of companies is they will speak about their business as if it's a car. They'll talk about driving change, accelerating reform, putting turbo charges on, having a change of gear. 
they'll put the components in place. If they're trying to help staff, they might issue a toolkit, an engagement toolkit. What's an engagement toolkit? A mouth. And so they'd speak in using the metaphor of company as car. And that feels great if you're a leader or you're in charge of strategy, because there would be nothing more seductive than to imagine that running a company is as easy as driving a car, that all you need to do is flick the ignition, put your foot down, change gear, you can go wherever you want to go. You know, it's an illusion, but it's comforting for the leaders. So they'll use that metaphor. We're driving this through. If you're in that organization, that metaphor says to you, you're a nut, a bolt, a component, a piece of machinery. You're there to fulfill a function. You're not a human being. You're dehumanized. You are not human, you know? And so for them, they will reject that metaphor. They will not want to listen when you've got that kind of metaphor going on. So what metaphor could be better, you know? Well, metaphors of family for a company. So speaking about all of us together, where we're going, creating a sense of momentum, the long and winding road, mountain high, river deep, or, you know, the imagery that we were talking about, that that could resonate more, not in a cheesy way, but just stripping out some of the awful language and introducing it with that, and you'll change the way that people feel. And this is when you get to, when you look at a lot of political debates, you see the actual argument which is going on. It's often about no more than a different metaphorical outlook. So with Brexit, if you were a Remainer, the EU was a family in which kept us safe was our home, in which we were loved with family members. If you didn't like the EU, it was a prison in which we were trapped and chained, set to the shackles of a big bureaucracy. We needed to take back control, have a clean break from that prison. And so they're different metaphorical outlooks. If you change, if you can change people's metaphorical outlook, you can shift the dial on an issue like that. And I've done done heaps of different research projects where I've tested all sorts of issues, like should we leave the European Union? How much should we give to the European Union? Where you just introduce a metaphor or change the metaphor and you shift people's reactions like that by doing nothing more than either inserting or changing metaphor. So very, very powerful. Of course, with COVID at the moment, a lot of the conceptualization in the popular imagination is metaphorical. It's an invisible enemy. We're fighting. We're combating. We've now got the the vaccine. We've been Jab's army was the front page of of the newspapers today. You know, this is a a metaphor. It's not the only metaphor that could have been used to talk about COVID. When COVID first came in, people were talking about a house on fire. We needed, we were walking around a burning house, which I think is really good because fires spread very, very quickly and they threaten lives. And you need to quickly get in there and extinguish it. I think that leads you to very, very decisive action. I think the war metaphor actually led to everyone just being shocked. Like, what do we do? Froze. And it it worked for Boris Johnson and for leaders around the world because it enabled them to take emergency powers and set the context for taking emergency powers. It grabbed everyone's attention. Did it get us all doing everything that we should have done? Not. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, genuinely, I don't, I don't know. You know, I've not done research on COVID metaphors specifically, but I've been watching them with fascination and always curious. Oh, I wonder what would have, what the effect would have been if they'd have shifted to this metaphor or that metaphor. Yeah, it's, it's amazing 
just how much influence in life that that can have. And I think one of the things you said in the book is that we, we just don't even notice how much it gets used in conversation, like the frequency with which we'll actually deploy uh, or hear metaphors in conversation. Most of it, you might notice some of them, but you certainly don't notice all of it because we're so used to speaking in that kind of language. But the idea that um, metaphor could potentially be the thing that makes the difference between whether, whether you act, react positively or negatively to something as well, is that well, we should definitely all be checking in with our metaphors and, and listening out for that. Do you find as someone who does this kind of thing professionally that you are always listening out for that or, or do you actually consciously have to tune yourself into it? I, I, I notice metaphors probably a little bit more often than I should do. <laughs> I, I try to remove that filter as much as I can, but it, I mean, it's a bit like a musician listening to music. You know what I mean? That you might recognize a particular chord change or a particular genre or, or whatever it is. It doesn't ruin your pleasure of conversation or anything like that. I don't go to dinner parties and say, you're using a war metaphor. You're a bad person. Of course. <laughs> I wouldn't get asked back, I don't think. <laughs> it could create some interesting situations at the dinner parties where you might have to deploy some of your own metaphors uh, to try and soothe, smooth things over. But uh, yeah, in interesting to notice that. So I love this whole idea of metaphor and that it gets used so much. What do you think people could actually do to become a bit more aware of that or to try and maybe master, might not be the wrong word, but to start developing some competency with with metaphor and how they deploy them especially as a lot of the people who i in the podcast who are doing either presentation work public speaking work uh, uh, workshops trainings things things where they are actually speaking in front of other people yeah i mean i think awareness is actually the first thing if you're metaphor aware then you've got a hell of a an advantage over a lot of people because most people are not aware of it and then taking it forward to recognizing your responsibility as a leader that the language which you use really deeply affects people's state of mind and the way that they feel you're with metaphor you're speaking to their subconscious if you're creating all of this petrifying war imagery which being reinforced day by day you're getting into people's dreams and that's it's quite a responsibility that leaders have the language that they use so just watching out for that and be behaving like a good human being <laughs> you know really <laughs> there's a lot of fuss at the moment obviously about trump and the language which he used his speech on 6th of january was this a speech that actually incited people to go in riots now i've gone through that speech it wasn't actually it, to my eyes it wasn't too different to all of the other rally speeches that trump has given over the years He's always used war metaphors. He's always used fight metaphors. When he launched his um, campaign to become president at Trump Tower in, I think, August 2015, he used the word, he used a fight metaphor for, throughout the introduction. He used, as I recall, he used the word beat six times. He used the word kill twice and the word victory twice, all within the first 200 words of his speech. So he's always used this fighting language. But of course, the case against Trump now is that he wasn't using metaphor when he was speaking on 6th of January. He was saying, we've got to fight. We've got to fight. I have to say this to me as someone who's been working in this field and thinking about metaphor 
writing speeches for politicians going back years. For me, this was not an appeal to insurrection, what he did on 6th of January. This was a standard, bog-standard Trump speech. He was using a war metaphor. We often conceptualize politics as a war, and we have done for years. Joe Biden's whole campaign, when Joe Biden launched his campaign in, in 2020, it was the battle for the soul of America. I, I don't think he was appealing to people to get out machine guns and, yeah. and go and start shooting up the White House or, or whatever. But again, this kind of, it does show why you've got to be careful. Because I think there's a real danger as well that in today's partisan world, we judge people on the other side of the argument to the one that we're <laughs> on very, very differently to the way that we judge people on our own side. A lot of the people that were condemning Trump's rhetoric on the 6th of January were cheering to the rafters when Arnold Schwarzenegger earlier this week gave a speech in which he was literally brandishing a sword. Right. <laughs> yeah. If Trump had done that, I think there'd, there'd have been questions asked. So, you know, we've always just got to be careful about the consequences of language and just appreciate and that everyone looks at things a, a different way. I have my political views. I'm not tribal about politics like some people are, but I always try to be aware. What do people on the other side think? And I actually have more friends probably in political parties I disagree with than with my own favoured kind of political view. And I think that sort of thing is really important as well. Just recognize yeah. that everyone's viewpoint is valid and it's just different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a, a few friends in the US who are Trump supporters. You know, I, I don't see it. I don't get it, but they're lovely people. And it's like, well, they see something that I don't, or they get, they're getting information or, or news in a way that I don't. And you know, they're acting on their beliefs. Uh, but as people, I'm not going to turn them away just because they vote for someone who I really don't like very much. Uh, and same in the UK as well. It's like yourself, not tribal about politics. I, I have my political beliefs, uh, whatever they may be, and they tend to be fairly left of center, I guess. But that's a healthy debate. And we should be able to have conversations with people we don't agree with and, and have civil conversations with people who we don't agree with because we just might learn something. This idea that we're always right or we can't change our minds about something is, is dangerous, in my opinion. We, we should always be able to change our minds about things. We should always be open to new information. And yeah, I, I with you there. Metaphor can be really helpful here, John, because metaphor can give you the clues into someone else's perspective when you analyze them. And you're, you're like, when you, if you have a Ravena saying this is suicide, we're committing suicide, leaving the European Union, as many Ravenas said. And then you have someone else, no, we're breaking free. Each have these kind of wholly fictitious narratives running in their heads. In actual fact, leaving the European Union, it's, it's definitely not suicide. And it's definitely not leaving a prison. Both sides are hugely exaggerating and distorting the real position. Chances are we'll leave the European Union. Life will go on as ever it did. <laughs> and no one much will really notice, apart from a few people that maybe worked in the European Union representing the UK government. Life will go on. But yeah. if we have these, these powerful narratives running in our head, it then, like I was saying, it gets into our subconscious. It wakes us up in the middle of the night. And so hence the responsibility that leaders have to speak carefully, I think.
Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. And I like that idea of listening to that and, and sometimes maybe pulling apart some of that uh, uh, metaphor that people are using and saying, you know, the, the hyperbole is, is used so commonly now and, and really in a, to some degree, you know, great, great exaggerations of hyperbole. And I think that's maybe one of the, the things that is behind the extreme levels of divisiveness. But we are bombarded with that all the time. I think, in fact, I think a lot of media, so I think if they don't use that kind of grand hyperbolic sort of, uh, metaphor, that they won't get eyes, they won't get clicks, they won't get audience. Uh, and so we see it all the time. And maybe people think that they have to go bigger and bigger and always over-exaggerating something that may not actually be important at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it culminates in Trump, you know, or it culminates in, in Brexit that you have this kind of, I'm going to outdo you. You get It's a, a war for rhetoric, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What, what's been interesting to, to me over the last year is how much more people want to connect now. You know, people really want to feel more, you know, I work in a world where I have to do a lot of marketing and promotion and work and things like that. And people really want to feel connected. They really want to have relationship with people, perhaps much more than ever before. I think things were already heading that way. And maybe the whole sort of thing, the COVID and stuff has accelerated that. And, you know, much, many more people focusing much more now on, on marketing stuff with relationship, getting, getting known, actually having some connection with people. And all the things that you talk about here, I think are super important in being able to do that. Uh, if you're not, if you're not using the right kinds of metaphors, if you're not delivering and, and really grabbing people by the emotions, then you're not going to be nearly as impactful as someone who can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That needs the connection brings us back like to what when we were talking about music to start off with music brings people together it creates this sense of connection it meets within us some some kind of spiritual need an emotional need a, a, a desire to feel connected with other people the people who love the same bands they're part of a club and they'll show their members of that club by the fashions that they take on the way they dress the way they behave and, and i think that's what leaders even in in companies should be looking to create that sense of connection. Leaders are there. Leadership is like an emotional contract. You recognize what people's emotional needs are, and then you meet those needs. So at the moment, people are feeling alienated, isolated. So the leaders that offer them a sense of connection are the ones that are going to win, the ones that are going to be heard because they're meeting people's emotional needs. People are feeling afraid about the future. So they'll look for leaders who make them feel hopeful, optimistic. People are feeling confused. So they'll look for leaders that provide a sense of stability and certainty when they speak. And it's this sense, the idea that leadership is an emotional contract, basically, where the leader meets people's emotional needs. And in return for that, they then get people's support. Is, is, I think, quite a useful one when leaders are thinking about how to position themselves. So, okay, what do people need here? What do you really, really need? And then thinking about their communication from that way around. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wanted to, to come back, and I, I know we have gone forever chatting here as much as that. I'm loving speaking to you. I did want to come back to that you do work privately with people and, and you also run workshops on teaching speech writing, which I think uh, I haven't really seen anyone else as much there's too much competition in that field right yeah no there's not really i think within the cabinet most cabinet members of the cabinet have their own speech writer and i think i've probably trained about 80 percent of cabinet speech writers going back even 
today. So there's not an awful lot of competition out there. But, I, you know, I think the thing is, is that people want to learn from a speechwriter who does it and who has done it at that kind of level. That I think speechwriting, because it's creative, you, you, you need that kind of the, the awareness of what it's really like to do it. Otherwise, it's like learning cello from someone who doesn't play the cello, who's never played the cello. That Fine, they might have read the books, but if you haven't faced that horror <laughs> of the blank screen, or, or indeed the clients who's read your piece of work that you slaved over for a whole weekend, and they just send you a curt text message saying, what a load of shit, get Bill to write it. Unless you have that kind of lived experience of what it really means to be a speechwriter, then you, you can't get it. So I now do coaching sessions on Zoom with speechwriters, very, very personal. And we work through dilemmas together, kind of everyday speechwriter dilemmas. You know, you've got this really boring text. How can we make this more lively? You have an audience that feels like this. What sort of imagery could we give them to make them feel like that? And we do all of this stuff together. And I've done a couple today, actually. They're great fun. I love them. And because the wonders with Zoom is that before I used to run my workshops in London and people would travel in from around the world for them. And now it's no trouble at all. So, you know, this this morning I, I did a session with someone in Lisbon and with two people in, in the Netherlands separately. And it, it's fantastic. And now you, because we're doing small sessions, so I just do two hours at a time. We do two hours once a week. So it is like music lessons, <laughs> a little bit. You know. yeah. And put it into practice in between. So every week we'll start with the like, how, how did it go last week? And every week working in this kind of way, they're coming in and they're like, oh my God, I did this thing for my boss. She said it was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And then we'll talk about how to develop it. So it's really cool. And I love doing it, actually. I think I've been writing speeches now for 20 years. And it's lovely to help the next generation along, you know, because I was in my like mid-20s or so when I started. And it's lovely. I really love it when you've got people who are just trying to find their way in the, the speechwriting world. And being able to show them this wonderful treasure chest of techniques, which is so, once you get into it, it's so enlightening. And it doesn't just concern speechwriting as well. There's so much about our modern life, not just politics, but business and our personal relationships, which are a rhetoric where rhetoric plays a role. And so, it, yeah, I love it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, I, that sounds like something I'd like to do myself, but if someone thinks, oh yeah, that sounds really good, I'm either thinking... Maybe Simon would write a speech for me, or maybe I can come and learn speech writing from Simon. How, how can they find out more about You can go to my website. It's www.bespokespeeches.com. Bespoke speeches. You see what I did there? I and, and you'll yeah, find my number, my email address. And this is what I do. It's what I love doing. If you've got a speech that you're really struggling to get going with, or you'd like a professional eye, some insight over it at the last stage, then it's, it's what I do and it's what I love doing as well. It's, as you can tell, I'm quite passionate about language. <laughs> and the, the thing is that I, I love it. I love it when we get to a place and my client is up there delivering a speech that they have really wanted to deliver. Often for them, uh, that moment after, it can be uh, almost like a getting married type moment where they are 
elated after they've given their first good speech, their first speech where they got a stand innovation or it went viral or whatever, that for a lot of people, public speaking is such a fear. Many people have had, which many people have had since childhood. And then when they first crack it and they're like, I can actually do it. I can be successful at it. It's like they've overcome some major, major obstacle in their life. So this is what I love to do. And if you want some help delivering a speech that you want to deliver, but also an audience is going to love hearing, then I'm your man. Give us a shout. Yeah, I was just thinking, I'm just about to start working on my Toastmasters competition speech for this year's uh, international contest. So I might be getting in touch, Simon, see if you can help me with that. <laughs> I'd, I'd be delighted to, John. I'd be delighted to. Fantastic. For all your metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to be considering that when, when I write it, that's for sure. And uh, for, for any Toastmasters out there, uh, get your competition speeches ready. It's coming up soon. Simon, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. And I want to start drawing things to a close date. And there's so much we didn't get to. I really want to talk to you more about story and about your process of working with people as well. That maybe I can, maybe I can make you feel guilty enough to come back in the future and talk about those things if you're willing to do that at some time. But it has been a real joy talking to you. I would, like to ask you what has been the, the last great thing you read that made an impact on you the last great thing i read that made an impact on me i i, I just I, oh my goodness i've just read an amazing book um actually called the queen of bloody everything by a writer here a british writer who's a friend called joanna nadin she used to write speeches for tony blair downing street back in the early Noughties, and she's since started writing fiction. And it was, it's such a moving book that touches all of your emotional buttons to it. For someone of my, me and Joe are similar kind of ages, and she captures the 70s, growing up in the 70s and 80s, and coming through the present day so well in that book. And so I'm recommending that to everyone now. I'm not going to wreck a thinky business book. <laughs> A book I, I apart from my own which well yeah indeed apart from, apart from your own i will also include links to to your recommendation and to your books and as i say winning minds is a great book uh, and so is your expert's guide to speech writing i have yet to read uh, you are not human i have a sample of it downloaded onto my kindle i'm looking forward to that what is the the essence of that book just quickly that's all actually about the power of metaphor and dehumanization. I was motivated to write that book after Trump's ascendancy and when he was talking about some of the foul language that he was using, call it his derogatory talk about the women that I won't use here, but that sort of thing. But also here in, in the UK, some of the debate that we had about um, immigrants as cockroaches, Katie Hopkins. David Cameron talking about a swarm. So I was looking about at, at metaphors, ways that groups of people within society are dehumanized. And so we have a hierarchical structure of humanity, which had sick people as vegetables, poor people as scum, women as bitches, and so on like that. And I kind of trapped about the history of the, the metaphor and then talked about the consequences, use and consequences of the present day. So it's quite a dark book. But really one that anyone who's worried about the state of the world now and the responsibility that politicians have to speak carefully with the metaphors they use should really have a look at it. And with all of the stuff about Trump, was he using metaphor when he said fight or literal? Puts it right into focus. Yeah, yeah. 
but uh, now whetted my appetite, uh, so I'm definitely going to have to go and read more of that. Any, any more books in the works right now? I, I, I do, yeah. I've got three books that are works in progress at varying stages. <laughs> Which one comes to fruition first? We'll, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for your time. Any final words for any would-be uh, speakers or uh, speech, make, speech writers out there? Be yourself. Simon, thank you so much for all of your time today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. And I hope that we do get to, to chat again in the future. And I'm certainly going to be looking forward to reading more of your books and, and looking out for future works and speeches from you as well. Simon Lancaster, thank you so much. Lovely. Thanks a lot, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did and you got some value from this, then remember the price of the show is sharing it out with your friends and your network. Now, I'm sure you will have got some great value from Simon Lancaster today. And I have lots more amazing guests, experts in influence and persuasion and related areas coming up on the show. Maybe you're an expert in one of these areas and you would like to be a guest. If you would, I'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch. If you would like to support the show beyond sharing and subscribing, then that possibility exists as well. For as little as five US dollars a month, you can buy me a coffee. And just by a number of people doing that, it enables me to be able to afford to get some other people to help me with things like the production and to be able to afford some better equipment, enabling me to put out more great content at a higher level of quality, making this show even more valuable than before. If you'd like to be involved in a deeper level, if you'd like to join us for our live streams with guests, then you can do that by following me on LinkedIn. You'll be able to see when the episodes are coming out. I have two live streams a week and they are exclusive to LinkedIn. So please make sure you're following me there if you want to see the live streams. If you'd actually like to join us in the virtual studio with the guests and potentially ask my guests your questions, then that is an exclusive membership benefit. And you can find more information of that in the same place as you can buy me a coffee on the Supercast page in the show note links below. So that's it from me. Until the next show for Speaking Influence, go and make great things happen.